All right. Welcome to the Hey Fountain podcast, where we offer early stage founders practical advice to grow their ventures. I'm your host, Justin, and today we're joined by Chris Combs, co-founder of LinkSquares, a Boston-based B2B SaaS company that revolutionized contract lifecycle management with their AI-powered platform, helping businesses automate the contract creation, review, and management processes. In this episode, we explore Chris's B2B sales journey, covering challenges, strategies, customer profiles, lead generation, sales pitches, closing deals, and scaling sales efforts. As Hey Founded focuses on Boston startups, we'll also discuss the impact of the Boston startup scene on LinkSquares. Let's welcome Chris, and I'm going to kick off with a question for you, Chris. How has the Boston ecosystem influenced LinkSquares, and what makes Boston an ideal place for entrepreneurs to launch and grow their ventures? Well, thanks for having me, Justin. Um, and a great, great topic to get started off with. I think Boston is a great place to, to do a startup. It's amazing just uh, how small the network is and how willing people are to dive in and help each other uh, build their businesses, uh, get introductions, do things like that. Uh, for, for us, it's it's been amazing to be in, in the area. Uh, and also, I feel like Boston is great for uh, sharing critical feedback and advice as well. And so uh, that also helps a lot of founders to cut through um, blockers and things like that that may be slowing them down. They might not even realize it. Um, so that's another huge thing with the area. Mm-hmm. I was I was listening to another podcast um, that you were on in preparation and you had an interesting story for why you actually decided to stay in Boston. I, I know you were deciding where you wanted to go after your first venture being acquired. Do you mind sharing that story around, you know, the decision to come to Boston? Well, um, it was actually, I, I said that I would take the first job offer I was given and that was here in Boston. So, so that made it definitely a lot easier to, uh, to make the jump from the Midwest where I'm originally from, uh, to the area. And in, in the process, I looked at um, San Francisco and Austin, I thought that Boston really had a, a much better community in terms of uh, cost of living, proximity to be able to connect with people. And uh, those things were certainly a big component when I first took my job interview up here. Uh, it was in October of 2013. So I'm coming up on 10 years being in the area now. And my first night in town, the Sox won the World Series <laughs> over 2013. And uh, so that was the first time I'd ever been to Boston. And, and needless to say, it was good enough that I uh, packed my bags and was up here full time two weeks later. There you go. So so it was a it was one of those experiences that, uh, you know, it was just kind of a, a fit quickly and uh, wouldn't say it's been easy by any means, but it's certainly been fruitful. And uh, in hindsight, I know I made the right decision. Right. Okay. Well, let's let's dive in maybe into the the topic of today's episode, which is really kind of trying to understand the B two B sales process, especially in those early stages where processes aren't scaled, they're not automated yet. It's a lot of hands on work by the founders, and I, I'd love to get your take on it because it's probably a big pain point for a lot of early stage uh, startups here in Boston today. So I'll start off with my first question. What specific strategies did you employ in the early stages of LinkSquares to address challenges? And what lessons did you learn from your initial sales efforts? 
Yeah, I think it, it may be helpful for us to, to go back a little bit and mm-hmm. um, talk about how we came across the idea for Link Squares um, sure. and how that kind of helped us and informed our approach to getting our first group of customers. As you said, fast forward to today, the company is Link Squares with over 500 employees, uh, nearing 1,000 customers. Um, we've raised uh, 160 plus million from 10 of the biggest VCs in the world. All these things uh, would have never guessed uh, had you talked to me uh, six or seven years ago. So a lot can change in a short period of time for a founder. And those are always, that's always good perspective to keep. My journey actually kind of starts uh, quite some time ago after college, uh, was working at a company that was doing some some work around courthouse paperwork, uh, automation, and working on some of those components. And then separately, I bought my first house about the same time. And at the home closing, they handed me this huge binder of of documents and they said, Hey, here's all the stuff that's important. Mm-hmm. We're going to pass this along to you and you got to hold on to this. And so, uh, just combine those, those two events kind of within a short period of time, it really stuck with me how much paper, uh, we deal with, uh, in business and in our personal lives, uh, from, you know, real estate to, uh, work and, right. you know, Going to the courthouse, doing anything like that involves just inordinate amounts of paper. And and I kind of, in my mind, it was very obvious that that was not going to be the case in the future and that we would all, you know, move everything online and documents included. And so since then, I've kind of been working on the same problem most of my career, uh, thinking about documents, security, uh, digitization, and those sort of things. And and um, that continued when I moved up to Boston. Um, I, I, as you said, I had a startup that I was working on, had some moderate success, raised some money from some angel investors, um, but ultimately uh, ended up getting back into the workforce and, and wanted to learn more from a startup that was further along. So I joined a Series C funded startup called Backupify and, and worked there for a couple years during that time we actually went through a acquisition of the company in late 2014 and during the process they kept coming to us and asking us questions about things we had agreed to with our customers so for instance they said hey we want to move all the data that you guys back up off amazon web services to the new acquiring company was a company called datto now part of kaseya um, and they said, Hey, by the way, can you check the terms of service and just make sure that there's no data notification clause that if we touch or move this data, that it could cause us to be in breach of a large number of the customer agreements. I think we had about 5,000 customers at that time. Right. And so, uh, that was the first time we actually tried to go back and understand what we had agreed to in our terms of service with our customers historically. And it was something that really stuck with us that it was number one, the contracts were everywhere going back and gathering up 5,000 terms of the service was nearly impossible. And then on top of that, there had been redlining in the process of the agreements, meaning there were edits and changes that were made to 
individual um, customers, and it, there was no tracking of which ones were unique and which ones were standard. And so those sort of things led us to realize that answering that question was going to be really tough. And so that was a bit of an aha moment for us about link squares. And it sort of combined a lot of my experience previously dealing with document management and document security, and then combined with the fact that during M&A events and other big events at companies, people typically struggle to gather all this information up and have it in a place that they can quickly look through a group of documents like a terms of service for your customers and understand key obligations and risks. And so that was kind of the aha moment for Link Squares where we said, hey, we've got we've had this problem. I wonder if other companies are struggling with this too. And that was kind of our journey beginning to from there was actually, okay, let's go try to get some customers to try to sell this product, um, which didn't exist by the way at the time. Yeah. So that was kind of, that was the beginning of the Link Squares journey. Um, you know, you've got this idea and you're trying to figure out how to go uh, talk to customers and mm-hmm. begin the process of, of, uh, you know, selling the product and finding partners and customers to work with you along the way. Well, I have a few comments. First off, that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, I've noticed growing a venture from a very early stage that no deal or contract that I make with, you know, a party is usually ever the same. There's all types types of different things that need to be negotiated um, and probably really difficult without, you know, the type of software that you guys have created to go back and trace what all those types of decisions are in an easy and streamlined way. So that makes complete sense. Um, I think it's also very interesting that the problem kind of started for yourself. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that made the process of finding customers much easier because you looked for, you know, companies like you, people that, you know, were in a similar position, I'm guessing that were probably experiencing something that was the same. That's right. Yeah. I think that that's always the best place to start with an idea. Not that every single idea comes from there, but certainly uh, having lived the problem yourself that you're trying to solve makes it easier to think through those early stages of developing the ideal customer profile, talking to your first group of customers, getting that first sale, getting the fifth sale, getting the 10th sale. Um, when you've kind of lived it and you can speak to it, it certainly helps people to resonate with you as you're developing and you're kind of exploring in the early days. But that's really just the beginning, right? We we were able to kind of sit down and say, okay, what were some other companies like us that may have this same problem as well? And And we actually set out to go have 75 conversations. That was our goal. And we didn't really measure anything else at that time. It was just did you have the conversation? Was it a qualified conversation? Did you have it? And because you're doing so much exploration at that time and not really getting too deep in the weeds of like, oh, it's got to be this exact thing, but more, let's just go have these conversations and let's go learn. Uh, we're not the experts. My co-founder, Vishal, and I were not lawyers by trade and we're trying to go talk to legal teams. And so 
we took the approach of like, we're not the experts, even though we live this problem a little bit, we need to go learn from the experts. So that was our goal was to just go have these conversations. We would uh, start it in our network, right? And I think that's always the best place for a founder to start. Start in your personal network, ask your friends for introductions, search through your LinkedIn, you know, search through news and other ways that you can find people that may be gravitating around this problem and reach out to them and ask them for uh, an hour meeting where you'd like to spend some time asking them some questions, learning more about their background, what they're dealing with, and then spend some time sharing a little bit about the stuff you're working on. And not to be overly formal with it, but just to to get that meeting in, in, in 2015, when we were starting, we wanted to go meet in person. That was our main goal because when you're in person, you can see people's interactions. You can see their, the way they're reacting with you, the way their eyes look, the way, are they staring at their phone? You know, all these things that you can read in a room that you really can't over a call or, you know, a zoom call in some ways. So. Yeah, we wanted to go in person and sit down. And so we went and did that 75 times before we started writing code. Um, and people are always shocked to hear that because, you know, what do you talk about? What do you do? Well, the idea is that you, you spend that time learning. And right. through those 75 conversations, we actually got a few customers um, that were really more obsessed with the problem that we were solving more than the solution we had. And I think that's a really strong sign for, you know, how you can measure the success of those conversations, those early conversations, you know, mm-hmm. are the people there first reacting positively to your meeting and the questions you have second, are they really excited about the problem that you're talking about solving? And we always kind of gravitated around that in the early days was just finding people that the problem resonated with them, they understood it, and they were willing to, to spend more time with us to keep sorting through it. Right, those early adopters. Um, it sounds like you guys did a few things that probably set you in the right direction. One is being obviously very customer-centric, customer-obsessed. And I, I also find it very interesting that the sales journey stock starts long before the product journey. Um, it's almost the first step. So, and I have heard you also talk about this in the past, you guys had that understanding, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, and you guys focused on developing Link Squares as being very sales oriented, correct? Yeah, we kind of built it around the skills that we had. Um, my co-founder was really more in uh, marketing, uh, marketing acquisition operations. Um, I was really more on the go-to-market business development sales side, and so we were comfortable doing that and we knew that that was probably the fastest path for us to getting some revenue um, and getting some traction. Um, And so that's just what we felt comfortable with. And it was really the thing that gave us the most energy. You know, it's kind of hard some days to just like sit and think about your startup while you're like slacking and emailing with people. And I'm sure Surely we had some of those days, but there's also something energetic about like getting out of the building, going to go someone's, you know, office, getting to go tour DraftKings or Carbonite 
for us those days. I mean, that was, that was just exciting in itself. And then getting to sit down with those leaders, the general counsels of those teams and spend time with them, learn from them. And when we would leave those meetings, we were typically really energized. Right. And we could go, go home in the evening, get back on, start to think more about the product. Um, and then, which I can get to in a little bit, we actually developed a clickable demo. So just the, the front end of a product so that uh, over time we can have something to show without having to spend, you know, a hundred grand building out a full um, functional product. And so that was kind of the, the next step that we took as we started uh, meeting with more and more people in person and, and developing those relationships. Right. I mean, I can totally understand why that would be so energetic. You're constantly just getting clarity on your vision and what you want to build. Um, I'm, I'm sure those conversations must have been so helpful, especially in the beginning. How did you, um, you know, over time, kind of start to begin to turn it from "I'm asking a lot of questions" to "This is the sales pitch for Link Squares." How did that start to transition, and what did that start to look like? I would also note that. While some of those conversations were great, um, many of those conversations were not great. And so <laughs> part of it was also not getting discouraged right. when you go into a meeting and someone's really busy and they're not paying attention to you, or they just outright tell you that this is not something they're interested in. They don't have time for this. They're not interested. Um, people will tend to nice you to death too, which is almost worse than someone being honest that they're not interested. They'll kind of oh, this is great. Congratulations. You, you know, thank, you know, congratulations for taking a leap. And yeah. then you guys are so young. This is so awesome. Good. Job. I don't want to, I don't want to disrespect you or be mean to you, but I also am not that interested either. So I'm going to kind of like nice you to death, which is like uh -huh. make you think you're onto something when I'm really not that interested, mm -hmm. uh, which like I said, is, is worse than someone just saying, Hey, look, like I don't have time for this. Um, yeah, but there's certainly going to be some rough meetings in there, especially when you're getting started. So the idea that, you know, um, it's all going to be roses is, is unrealistic. And also use those opportunities to listen and understand something that you might not be thinking about, right? We made some key product decisions in those days as a result of uh, meetings that just didn't, didn't really uh, you know, that didn't go well. And so we would say, oh, here's where I would change that uh, strategy. And this kind of gets to your question, which is like, when do you actually start pitching? Um, I think once we had done a couple things, validated that um, this was a problem that uh, companies were struggling with. And not only were they agreeing with us, but they were able to give us examples that we weren't even aware of, of how this problem is actually even bigger than we thought, right? And so we would come out of some meetings and say, wow, this is even more impactful and, and challenging to business than we believed it was, right? They're, they're validating that for us. Um, and so those kind of things were huge to be able to get in there and, and hear that type of feedback. Once we had validated that, yes, this is in fact a problem and we've done the market analysis. There's really not a product out there. It's not like we're going in and people are saying, oh, I use X right. or I use X and Y for this. It was more like, 
I'm not using anything. I don't use anything for my contract management today. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of another checkbox that you say, all right, there's no product in the space for this. We can't find a product that does exactly what we want, which is AI powered contract analytics, uh, historical document analysis. And so then we started to think more about, I mentioned the, one of the things we did was developed a, a pitch deck and would take people through that, formalizing the pitch, guiding the conversation a little bit more, still, still being open-ended, still listening, but guiding it more to or around qualification of the customer profile that we were going for, yeah. things like that. And then later, probably maybe after 40 or 50 pitches was when we decided to develop the clickable prototype. Okay. And so that's really essentially working with the designer, going ahead and designing the UI UX of the product as you're envisioning it, and then coding it into the front end and not into the back end in the sense that um, it's not going to be like a fully functional database that's storing data and, you know, writing to a database. It's just going to be the clickable part where you can just move around and you can say, oh, if I click here, it opens up this page. Right. And so what you're doing is you're building yourself like a thousand dollar demo, right? <laughs> Instead of a hundred thousand dollar demo, it's like a thousand dollar demo. And then no one can tell on the other side, essentially. Well, it, yeah, it, if they can, that's okay. We weren't trying to hide it necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but we also were just trying to show what we were thinking in a way where we're showing more than telling at some point. Was that a memorable step for you guys? Yeah, it definitely helped us to continue to uh, iterate on the product, right. uh, where we were getting feedback. Oh, I wouldn't, oh, if you do it this way, it doesn't work as well. And we're saying, oh, we can change that. So we're actually iterating on the product design again, without having to redo a bunch of backend code. And we're also getting further and further down the, the line with these prospects so that, um, you know, they're now actually seeing it and they're saying, oh, this is cool. Yeah. If you guys could build this and if you could deliver on this, we would, we would be a buyer. Right. And so now you're kind of getting in this like action oriented spot where people are saying, yes, if you could do X, Y, and Z for me then I would be willing to become a customer, right? Yeah. And, and from there, we actually would go ahead and organize the contract, the, the terms of service of our customer contract to, to include that. So we'd say, okay, go ahead and sign up because you know we need the validation to our potential investors, to you know ourselves that you're going to work with us. If you do that, as a result, we'll go ahead and build these things in the next 90 days. And so you're kind of starting to build like a work order uh, for some of your customers. And and that was how we got our first 10, 15 customers was just kind of working through a lot of those situations, building a pipeline, having the conversations, doing the demos. And then uh, over time, after we had a couple of these, we knew that it was starting to get very real then it was like, okay, let's actually build this product. We've, we've validated the problem. We're moving on to the solution piece of it. And, you know, we got customers that are paying us to 
go down this road. Hey. <clears throat> I'm realizing now I'm not going to get to everything that I've, you know, kind of set up for this episode. And I think part of that is because this is probably one of the biggest challenges in a startup. It's how do I actually, um, you know, make money from my idea, um, <laughs> which is kind of funny to have a, have a conversation <laughs> around that. But I, I do have a few more granular questions. One is, and we, we can hit all three of them maybe, one is how did you get in contact with these people in the beginning? I think that's definitely a struggle a lot of startups have. Two, these agreements you're making in the very beginning, are they binding? Are they not binding? Are you actually including pricing, stuff like that? And then three, maybe you can take us through your very first customer and what that journey was like. So I'll, I'll start off with the first one again. What is, how did you get in contact with these people? Yeah, so so I recommended using your network. If you're a real entrepreneur, like rub two sticks together, start your fire, like, yeah. you know, no one, we, we did not start with a lot. We started with our networks, um, some of our background, you know, we had worked at a couple of tech companies and it was valuable to see what a, you know, series C funded company looks like. So you kind of had something to know that you were building in the right direction. But at the end of the day, we sourced a lot of the introductions ourselves. And, and the other thing we figured out was, uh, developing a cold email script. So identifying the ICP, which for us was in-house general counsels. We didn't sell the law firms, anything like that. Um, and then finding those folks and reaching out to them with a clean pitch, um, not going way over the top, but not also, you know, not being unfocused either. It was just a very pointed uh, piece about our story and why we would want to have more conversations. And so, uh, that really worked. It, it was, it was enough that, uh, we could set, um, you know, like I said, five, 10, 15 meetings a month. And that was certainly enough to keep us going over time. You mentioned making money, uh, over time we figured out that, you know, it was costing us around 30 grand a month all in. Um, keep in mind this was 2015 so things are probably different about 30 grand a month all in for us to uh, run the business give ourselves just a little bit of money um, and that our goal every month was just to sell enough revenue that we would cover those bills so if we brought in you know two to three customers let's say two customers at a thousand bucks a month each we were coming really close to being profitable and so I think that's a great goal for a startup. You're not going to, you know, become a multi-million dollar company right off the bat, but you can try to develop your sales process so that you can get enough customers to cover your monthly expenses. Then you can technically go on forever, right? You could technically just keep doing that month after month after month. And the beautiful thing about SaaS is that it compounds. So right. that month it's two, the next month you might get two or three before you know it. You know, you're like us, you're getting hundreds of customers per quarter and it just continues to compound as you grow and scale. That's the the magical little J curve you get from ARR. Yeah. It, that's great. That's right. Um, so in these conversations, um, you know, you're starting off asking questions, then you get to the point where you're developing a demo, a more refined pitch. You clearly know what Ling Square is, is to some degree. Um, and you're trying to pitch that. 
and eventually now they're signing LOIs, it sounds like. Um, what's in those LOIs? What's in those early agreements exactly? Yes, so um, we did do um, a couple pilots in the sense that we would do like, you, you big believer in paid pilots. So I don't do unpaid pilots. I think that for someone to work with you and give you real feedback, they should be paying for the software. If not, then there's just not a lot of alignment for them to take it that seriously. And so that was always my main request. Hey, look, if you can't sign up for, we actually did annual upfront contracts. So we charged a whole year upfront. And for folks that were really hesitant for that in the business, uh, at our stage, we would did do some like 90 day engagements where you just pay for the first 90 days and we call it a pilot. And if everything goes well, the implementation goes well, then we can extend it. And I think almost, I think all of those extended. Um, so it's really just about making the steps for the prospect as small as possible. Mm-hmm. People don't like to jump across big chasms. They don't like to get too close to the edge. So the idea is to keep giving them small options that were hard to say no to. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it was qualification call, no demo. So first 30 minutes of the call is all about talking about your process, your team, your structure, and and whether or not you know, you're know you actually actively looking for the software. If the call goes well, then we move to a demo. So then we take an hour and do a full demo um if that goes well then what we do is offer a free proof of concept so we would say hey you can send us 10 of your contracts pick 10 your 10 worst contracts your 10 best contracts doesn't matter send those to us we'll actually set up your account for free and we'll log back in and we'll take you through another demo with your own docs in the system and so we found that that was hard to say no to which is kind of again making those little small steps why do you know it's hard to say no to? Because it's free. And it really just requires them to just gather up some documents. I mean, there were certainly some people that just ended up not doing it. Security or just laziness, who knows, right? right? But once someone gave us 10 of their contracts, we found that uh, that they would close as a customer about 60% of the time. Solid. So two out of three of those once they gave us 10 contracts, they would close and become a customer. So mm. if you keep in mind, I don't like to do unpaid stuff, but like a free short period trial, you know, in our case, it was like two weeks to upload 10 of your agreements. And then at the end we say, Hey, look, you've pretty much done everything you can do with us. The link squares, right? We've, we've met each other. We talked on the phone, you've done a demo, and now we've set you off with a proof concept or trial of the software. At this point, it's like, it's time to make a decision, you know, in, in a much nicer words, but <laughs> it's time to make a decision about whether or not you want to work with us or yeah. if this is enough that you want to continue. And then from there um, was where we would bring in the terms of service of the agreement, right? And it was actually, a, like I said, annual upfront SAS agreement that we would offer. Uh, I mentioned that sometimes people would say, well, I need... X. I need it to handle this type of document. I need it to, you, you know, pick the thing that they needed. And we would say, hey, look, we can't do that right off the bat. But if you, if you want, we can put that in the agreement that says, hey, within 90 days, 
we'll have the integration with you know, Google Drive because all your docs are in Google Drive and you want to make sure that you can continue to use Drive while right. you also have this contract management platform. And and, and this aligns yeah. with what you're trying to do as well, I'm sure, because you know if you have three or four customers that are telling you I need an integration for Google Drive, that's probably there's probably a lot more customers who want that as well, right? If you're hearing it a lot, then that gives you even more reason to say yes. Now, there were yeah. certainly situations where someone says, well, I need this, and we're going, well, we don't really know if that's something we need, but mm-hmm. look, again, if you sign the contract and you pay me, agree to pay me, at that time it was like fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars $18,000 a year, I'll, I'll consider it, you know, I'll, I'll take on that opportunity. Yeah. Especially in the early days, right? When you're just dogging it. Exactly. Exactly. Any new customer is massive. Right. And I think that's what you were asking was, you know, we, that's how we got our first few customers was just kind of, um, so you can do anything and everything that, that they needed us to do and kind of being a little more custom in those days, but also not agreeing to anything that was going to take us off our major roadmap path as well. And it, it's, it's a fine line that you got to know. For sure. How do you, how, I, I only have a few questions left and um, some of them are actually tied, tied more to like the process I'm at with my current venture. Um, we're in the corporate wellness space, developing a software product. And we're definitely in that we're, we're hoping to like release products um, that we can, you know, share with customers, potential customers, in the next few weeks and i definitely think you know there we're kind of staring into the abyss in some ways we're, we're a little you know trying to figure it out and um there's a lot of you know advice i personally need so i'm going to ask you some of the questions kind of tied to myself but one of them is how did you continue to keep customers engaged with you while you were developing because sometimes you know you're you might have these conversations very early on and you'll send follow-ups and you'll tell them about your progress. But how do you like, how, what was your strategy for keeping, you know, stringing these guys along over time? Yeah. So there's a couple things uh, worth noting. And I think I touched on it a little bit just a second ago. You do need to have a defined sales process that you right. feel like fits for what you want to do and also fits for the customer and fits for your product. And, and like I said, that for us was, 30 minute introduction call, no demo follow up. If it goes well and they pass that test, then it moves to an hour demo. It was days. Sometimes we just had the clickable demo. And so, you know, maybe 30 minutes of it was clicking on the product, 30 minutes of it was just asking them more questions. And then again, continuing to think about little small steps that you can create after that, that are hard to say no to. And for us, again, that was, we figured out that that free trial, free POC was people just said yes to it. And it's like, you, you know, that moment when you're on the call and you're like, how would it, how, you know, how, what do you think about actually, you know, sharing 10 documents with us and we can set up the basics of your account so you could take a further look at it. Is that something you want to do? And they start saying yes, right? You're on those calls and people are like, yeah, that sounds good cool. All right. Well, I'm going to follow up with some instructions. I'll give you a Dropbox folder and put those contracts in there and we'll get your account set up. Right. And so people are saying yes. And there's also follow-ups or next touch points, Mm -hmm. a reason to keep in touch, um, following up and saying, Hey, I'm checking back in with you. is not a reason to keep in touch, right? It's, 
it's just sort of chasing a little bit. And, and sometimes I think founders have to be careful chasing. Obviously you do have to continue to stay persistent, um, and get, you know, that yes or no answer from someone, but also did, you know, in the, in the process of the sale, did this person actually, were they accountable to you? Um, did they respond positively and were they actually working with you in the process? Then you want to follow up and pursue them. But if they're not engaging with you, then maybe you have to be honest with yourself and say, Hey, is this a real prospect or not? Is this a real opportunity for me? Or am I just kind of like following up because I don't know what else to do? No, for sure. I, um, I've definitely gotten this advice, which helped me out a lot, out a lot, which was, um, every conversation should have an outcome. Um, it should be very outcome driven and that outcome should be as easy as possible to actually, um, achieve. And so, you know, even having you on the show, you and I had a quick conversation, um, you know, talking a little bit about your background before this and then at the end of it, I had an ask and the ask was for you to come on the show. Right. And I, I hopefully made that a very easy process by, you know, submitting you the outline for what the show would be right. you a date to schedule, but it's very outcome driven. There has, there's no point really in having a conversation. If there's, you know, no result. Right. And, and I think it's just important to, uh, be able to, in, in difficult times, you also can lean on that process. So it's like, I don't, maybe I'm in a conversation where it's not going as well as I wanted. What do I do? Well, let's fall back on the demo, right? Like maybe the initial conversation doesn't go well, fall back into your process and say, Hey, why don't we jump right into the demo? I know that's what we were planning to do for this, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. And let's jump into that. And over time that person opens back up, right? The conversation doesn't be, it's not as painful. It's not as arduous. Mm-hmm. And they're starting to open back up. Oh, it would be really cool if you did this. Or what about, or how are you thinking about this? And right. all of a sudden things are back on track, right? You leaned on your process and you built the process. You stuck with it through the thick and thin. And that kind of can give you a way to stay consistent. And also, like I said, like, having those great in-person meetings, not that all of them were great, but it can give you a lot of energy too, to be able to get up and do it all again the next day. Right. That's super interesting because it, it, it's true. Sometimes it's hard to actually um, commit to the ask. And I guess if you have a process that's well-defined, um, that makes it a little bit easier. Exactly. You know what the ask is before you get on the call. So it's just about you know, spending that time uh, and I call I call part of what you're doing in those calls. I probably don't have enough time to, to sort through it all, but I call it the Q framework. And what I mean by the Q framework is using questions to continue to qualify and understand more about the opportunity in front of you. So the most prepared salespeople, founders, when they're going through that process, they always kind of know that key question at that key moment that can keep the conversation on track. And uh, people also like to give advice. So you kind of get in this situation where it's like, if you're asking really good questions, you're learning more about your opportunity. You're allowing the prospect to speak freely and give you some advice, give you some feedback. And there's kind of this balance where everyone wins and you 
if you're controlling the conversation by asking good questions, then that gives them the opportunity to help you, which is to tell you more about what they're thinking about in terms of their buying process. Are they serious? Are they just looking around? And uh, I always leaned on those questions at that opportune moment. And you kind of have like a short list of things where things get off track a little bit. You just fall back to that next question and the conversation gets right back on track. Right. I, I, I'm going to, I know we're going a little bit over time, so I do want to wrap it up for you. I'm kind of curious, what is, what, what are your thoughts around how generative AI might change the sales process? I'm thinking, you know, personalized messaging, um, mass messaging, there's probably going to be a lot of software products and I'm guessing B2B is going to be saturated in some way. How do you think the whole sales journey changes because of that? It's a great question. One that I don't have a definitive <laughs> answer. I can say that we really leaned on cold emails in the, again, our, our early days, right. 2014, 2015 timeframe. Um, but today fast forward today i get hundreds of cold emails a right. day and i just can't it's it's kind of gotten over on the other side of the bell curve mm-hmm. and certainly the ways to it's not to say that email doesn't work the ways that it does work by customization right messages that show that someone's taken an interest in really chatting with me um also uh, outreach that again, like you were saying, it has some sort of ask to it and some sort of tie that keeps us conversing together. Um, something that I can, it's, it's easy to say yes to and to keep going. Um, and I think that you can certainly see a world where all of your follow-up emails, I mean, even if you use Gmail today, a lot of it is auto completes for you. Yeah. Right. So, um, is it possible that there's a future where your emails are pre-written and you're just kind of like sending them? Maybe, um, maybe that's easier for everyone, right? Maybe we're all saving time doing that. We're able to interact more, uh, without having to spend all day writing emails, or maybe it goes the other way where it's more, uh, informal and impersonal and, you know, there's something else that, kind of breaks through. Right. But I think that's the job of a salesperson is to be able to run a process that, um, a prospect enjoys being a part of and doesn't mind interacting with you. I mean, we, uh, were able to develop a really strong board of advisors out of those early conversations we had at link squares and many of those folks still work with us today. And so I think that speaks to uh, the interest we've had in actually building relationships with people and mm. not just kind of going through the steps with, without a goal in mind. Right. No, I think, I think that's really good advice. And I, I like that you guys did, um, in-person meetings. I wonder if that becomes more relevant, um, now and hopefully, you know, it's something that companies can do since we're not in a pandemic anymore. <laughs> right. So anyways, I appreciate it, Chris. Thank you so much. Um, I think this was actually a, such a really helpful conversation. I definitely got a lot of insight. So again, thank you. Happy to join Justin. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn and uh, feel free to reach out to me if I can help. 
yeah for get sure. your first customers uh <laughs> anyone out there listening so thanks again for having me great take care chris enjoy the weather in boston today see you justin bye